you ever open your wardrobe and feel a bit sad? Guess what? You can now buy Across the Ages t-shirts and hoodies by going to acrosstheagespod.com, which is pretty exciting and all feels a bit fancy, but I guess I am fancy now. We love a bit of entertainment. Yes, we have singers, actors and comedians that bring us endless joy. But I wanted to cover some of the more unusual entertainers across history. So take a seat, friends. Get some popcorn. The show is about to begin. I'm Natalie. This is Across the Ages. jester i think of a bloke in a checked hat with bells on it dancing around in front of a medieval king bravely winding him up but surprisingly it appears that jesters or fools were not a medieval invention jesters in everything but name were common in ancient egypt ancient rome china and the aztecs got in on the action as well the earliest record we have of court fools comes from egypt 4500 years ago which blew my mind a little bit because there'd always been a Tudor thing in my mind, but I suppose that's what happens when you get into a research rabbit hole. Or jester hole, I suppose. Ugh. So the Egyptian pharaohs revered the short peoples of Central Africa, who were anthropologically referred to as pygmies. They captured them and forced them to perform for the royal court's entertainment. If you're a fancy person in ancient Rome, your household was considered rubbish if you didn't have a fool. Unfortunately, and unsurprisingly, the fools were more often than not slaves, and slaves with deformities fetched a good price so they could be used as entertainers at meals and events. When the Spanish conquest was well underway, the Spanish conquistador Bernal Diaz del Castillo notes that the Aztec king Montezuma II had jesters, and they're all disabled in some way, describing them as sometimes some little humpback dwarves would be present at his meals, whose bodies seemed almost to be broken in the middle. These were his jesters. That's a bit sad. From the 12th century, we start to see mentions of medieval royal courts employing fools. It's not a word that is particularly in fashion at the moment, and you don't hear it a lot, but it does feel like quite an innocent and inoffensive word compared to some we might hear later in the podcast. The mentions are found in financial documents showing individuals receiving some pretty excellent gifts from the royal families they'd spent time taking the piss out of. During King Henry II's reign of England in the 12th century, a fool, na- a fool named Roland Le Petor received 30 acres of land, probably upon his retirement, as a thank you for years of making the king laugh his tits off. There was one condition on this very generous gift, though. He was to return every Christmas day to court, and I quote, to leap, whistle and fart. For 30 acres of land, which is the equivalent of 22 football fields, I'll leap, whistle and fart as many times as you like. In the French court of the 16th century, there was a royal fool named Nicolas Ferrail, who was more famously known as Tribolet. He was born with microcephaly, I mean, I'm not helping myself putting all these words in, microcephaly, which is a neurological condition causing the head to be significantly smaller than it should be, which caused him physical and learning difficulties. He had a terrific wit and secured himself a place at the court of Louis XII of France and Francis I. His terrific wit, however, was the very thing that caused him the most trouble. I mean, you've got to be quite ballsy if you're going to take the piss out of a king. 
Literally anyone else who did it was risking a death sentence. So like other jesters, Tribolet had a unique place in court, though I can imagine it might have felt like balancing on a knife edge. It was not only the king he mocked, but nobles too. In one case, the noble in question didn't take an insult too well and threatened to have Tribulet hanged. He went to King Francis and was like, right, this noble guy's been an absolute dick and threatened to hang me, which is not cool, and I shouldn't have to work in these conditions. That's the gist of it anyway. Francis was like, yeah, man, that's not profesh. If he hangs you, I'll hang him 15 minutes later, okay? To this, Tribulet... I can't say it. <laughs> Tribolet... Tribole replied dryly, and here's an actual quote. Well, would it be possible to behead him 15 minutes before? The king was not impressed with that one. Already on thin eyes, Tribulet woke up one night and thought, you know what I'll do? Slap the king on the arse in front of all his mates. That'll go down well. Pretending it was the fourth Fifty Shades film, he went for it, and Francis threatened to have him hanged. That's strike two, sir. The king gave him a small olive branch after he had a little time to chill out and agreed to forgive him on the condition that he was able to think of an apology that was more insulting than the BDSM. I'm sorry, your majesty, that I didn't recognise you. I mistook you for the queen. Strike three, mate. The king ordered for him to be put to death. Insulting the queen was off limits to jesters and unfortunately he had pushed the king a bit too far. The king wasn't a complete menace though and allowed Tribulet to choose the way he was to die. Good sire, by Saint Goody Two-Shoes and Saint Fatty, patrons of insanity, I asked to die from old age. Having no other choice but to laugh, the king ordered that he was not to be executed, but instead be banished from the realm. The jester, who had escaped execution by the skin of his teeth, died at the ripe old age of 57. Get your bronzer and your tiny bikini ready, because it's time to hear about some strong women. I don't mean strong at heart or strong-willed, though no doubt they were. I mean women who were strong enough to lobby across the room. The first strong woman that we're going to hear about was born Lavery Cooper, but she was better known by her stage name, Charmion. She made her stage debut in 1897 in New York City, and her act was racy. This was the end of the 19th century a time where women wore corsets, necklines that came right up under the neck, and the skirts went right down to the floor. Women were to be in the home, raising babies, and certainly should not be on the stage, which was reserved for dirty harlots. Though she was born in California, she pretended that she was born in France, because who can resist the charms of a French beauty? Not me, that's for sure. By the time she was 19, she was performing as a gymnast, and over the next few years, she grew in popularity because her moves were fire... When she was 22, she started to add a little bit of saucy striptease into her act. In 2022, if you go to see a striptease, you might see someone take off a top, maybe some trousers or a skirt, maybe stockings, followed by underwear and you're pretty much down to the nipple tassels. This was on another level. Because remember all of those clothes that Victorian women wore? Think of how many layers she'd have taken off to show a bit of skin. She would start the show in a Victorian dress, up on a trapeze swing and take layers off while wanging herself round and upside down, showing her unmentionable garments while she did so. She kept this up until she got down to her leotard, which must have blown the audience's woolen socks off. You can actually watch her performing her act in 1902 if you pop trapeze disrobing act into YouTube. It seems quite tame when you watch it now, but it's quite charming. Another strong woman hails from Abergavenny in Wales, which is one of my adopted towns, so I was particularly drawn to her. 
She was born Miriam Williams, but became known as Vulcana, which is badass. She was born around the same time as Charmian, and her physical aptitude was noticed by her preacher dad, who sent her to a local women's gym. I was a bit surprised when I read this and didn't realise there was such a thing as a women's gym in the Victorian era, but I add it to the millions of assumptions of mine that get squashed while doing research for the pod. She began her career appearing in local fates with other performers and was quick to impress. Apparently, she could lift a 12-stone man with one hand over her head. That's £168. She ran away with the guy who ran the gym, who was married, awkward, and joined his troop in the big smoke. That's London for those not familiar. Because of the potential for Victorian scandal, they pretended to be brother and sister when they performed on stage together. Their act was called Atlas and Vulcana. They went on to have a successful career and were eventually joined up on stage by their six kids. I'm not going to lie, most of the reason why I wanted to cover this next person is because I wanted an excuse to say her stage name over and over again. Because it's just so fun to say. Her real name was Ross, Ro, Rossa. <laughs> her real name was Rosa Matilda Richter, but her stage name was Zazzle. Zazzle. She was born in London in 1816 and was drawn to acrobatics from an early age as her dad was a talent scout and her mum was a dancer in a circus. At 12, Zazzle went on tour with a performing troupe of acrobats performing tightrope walks and trapeze. The career changer, though, came with a bang in 1877 when she became known loosely as the first person to be fired out of a cannon. I suppose that also means the first person to be fired out of a cannon for a performance rather than some sorry sod executed by cannon. Unsurprisingly, there was no gunpowder involved in the firing. It was more like a springed launcher. Boing! She did really well with her act and was earning £200 a week and performing in front of crowds of 20,000 people on the reg. Her luck ran out, though, after her career was cut short by missing the net. She broke her back and was forced to retire. Zazzle. It's time to learn about the man with the rubber face, rubber face, rubber face. I've always been quite proud of the fact that I can flare my nostrils and raise my eyebrows one at a time and often do it to amuse children. Not in a weird way. Well, I look like an absolute knobhead compared to James Morris. Much like myself, James learned of his talent quite early on and used his incredibly stretchy skin as a party trick. I'm not talking about what happens to the back of your hand when you get dehydrated. He could pull his skin 45 centimetres or 18 inches away from his body, which is insane, and it didn't hurt him one bit. He joined the army and the officers enjoyed his act so much that they rang some reporters to come and have a look. Okay, this is the late 1800s, so maybe they sent a letter or a telegram. Maybe a carrier pigeon. That was the start of his circus life, performing around the world until he finally joined the Barnum and Bailey Circus in 1885. He was featured in Scientific America as the Rubber Man, and for the photo shoot, he grabbed his skin from the from his neck and pulled it over his head like a sinister balaclava. <laughs> Unfortunately, his fame wasn't to last, and he eventually became a barber. James's rubber skin was actually the result of a condition called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which affects connective tissues, with stretchy skin being one of the symptoms for some sufferers. It sounds like he made the best of it, though. I wonder if Stretch Armstrong was based on him. One thing you don't want to do is get bitten by a snake, much less a venomous snake like a cobra. Our next person didn't give a shit about being bitten by snakes, though, because they didn't do a thing to harm her. 
Ivata Matade was a performer that came to fame in the late 19th century in Chicago. Most of the following info is from an article from the Welcome Collection because for some reason she's not been covered very much compared to some of the other entertainers that I've talked about. Ivatima was born in Trinidad in the 1870s and at five years old had been bitten by a cobra, which instead of killing her put her in a coma for 30 hours, after which she woke up apparently unscathed. I'm not sure how she found out this next bit, but she realised that she could be bitten by anything venomous and not feel any effect. This blows my mind a bit, because if you've just been bitten by a cobra and been knocked out for over 30 hours, would you just go and find something else to have a little... Go, oh, go on, have a go on my arm. However, it happened, and she found out that she had this strange ability and decided to use it to make a bit of money, as obviously you would. She said she didn't even feel pain when she was bitten. To one reporter, she said, I never had a pain in my life. I don't know what an ache is. I'm always happy, never sad. She had no sense of touch at all and relied on sight to get on with her daily life. She was an independent entertainer who performed wherever she could, be that doctor's offices, lecture theatres and dime museums. She wasn't only immune to venom, however. She claimed to be able to stop her own circulation and dislocate her own neck. As well as all of this snake business, she used to have herself crucified, which I find absolutely mad. Imagine imagine paying a dime, I don't know, let's say that's like Tempe. Imagine paying that and walking into a museum and seeing this woman just being crucified, you'd have a heart attack. Describing this, she said, I rather enjoy, I rather enjoy being crucified. It amuses me to see the horror-stricken countenances of my auditors. That's That's a really posh way of saying it. There are upwards of ten fates to each seance, but they never fail to return again to see me. In 1897, she was performing at Cole and Middleton's Dye Museum in Chicago, where she met Harry Houdini. He wasn't famous yet, but he was on his way. Houdini liked to learn how people did their tricks. Sorry about that, my cat Sweet Pea obviously wants to get involved in the conversation. In his 1920 book, Miracle Mongers (laughs) and Their Methods, Houdini wrote, For the simple reason that I worked within 12 feet from her, My statement was that there was absolutely no fakery attached to her startling performance and it can be taken in all seriousness. After years of investigation, I've come to the belief that this immunity was the result of an absolutely empty stomach into which a large quantity of milk was taken shortly after the wound was inflicted. It's thought that the cobra bite paralysed her sensory nerves and that the cobra had only delivered a small amount of venom that day. It's a bit like Wesley in The Princess Bride. Do you remember that scene when he killed Vizzini because he poisoned both of the cups because he himself had been taking small doses of poison for like forever and was therefore immune? That's basically that, right? She had a really successful career, but unfortunately it was not to last. She was attacked in a pub by a crazed man who had become infatuated with her. He saw her with another man and decided to shoot them both and then kill himself five hours later. Sadly, yet another story we're all familiar with of a woman being killed by a man, which is such a horrible shame. Hirsutism and hypertrichosis are conditions which cause people to grow lots of hair, the first in particular places and the latter all over. Both of these can cause women to grow beards and across history these women have been known as bearded ladies. We have an early mention of bearded ladies in a 12th century book written by Gerald or Gerald? Gerald of Wales called The Topography of Ireland. This is what it says. Duven, Duvenold, king of Limerick, had a woman with a beard down to her navel and also a crest like a colt of a year old, 
which reached from the top of her neck down to her backbone, and was covered with hair. The woman, thus remarkable for two monstrous deformities, was, however, not a hermaphrodite, but in other respects had the parts of a woman, and she constantly attended the court, an object of ridicule as well as of wonder. Rude. At first when I read this, I assumed that the woman was the wife of the king, but as it just says the king has a woman, I think she mean he means she was more for entertainment. I can't imagine what it must be like to be gawped at and to be described by this wanky Gerald as monstrous. People are harsh nowadays. I can't imagine how nasty people have been in the 12th century. Dick. In 1865, Annie Jones was born with hair covering her chin. Her parents didn't waste any time and before she was even a year old, she was taken to New York to be featured in P.T. Barnum's museum. She did really well and Barnum offered her mother $150 a week for a three-year contract, which she grabs with both hands and moved to New York. The commute from Virginia probs would have been a bit tiring. A year into the contract, her mother apparently had some family emergency and thought, yeah, it'll be fine leaving a child with some exploitative ringmaster. This will be fine. Well, it wasn't fine because she was kidnapped by a bloke who tried to exhibit her privately, though it has been suggested that Barnum planned the whole thing as a publicity stunt. The nutcase, or I guess the actor, was found and her mother realised that she should probs not just leave her daughter again. As she grew up under the gaze of the dribbling public, she was not content with just being gawked at, so learnt to play music. She married twice and worked in different shows, but eventually made it back to Barnum's greatest show on earth. At this time, a lot of the people that I'm talking about were branded as freaks, which is just the grossest term. Annie campaigned against the use of the word freak to describe sideshow performers. Sadly, she died at the age of 37 from tuberculosis. If only they had the vaccine. When I was halfway through writing this episode, I was telling my dad about the topic, and he said, Well, you'll have covered Joseph Pujol then. No, I've not heard of him, I said. The minute dad described this performer, I started laughing, and you'll soon find out why. As a side note, if you're lucky enough to have your parents around... Give them a ring. I bet they'd love to hear from you. Let's head to the Moulin Rouge in 1892 in Paris. You've been waiting for a sophisticated night out and you've been looking forward to it for weeks. You own a fancy dinner jacket with a stiff high neck collar and have donned your shiniest top hat. After you settle down, the lights finally dim. The Moulin Rouge is one of the first buildings in Paris to get electricity after all and you await the entertainment. There is what looks like a giant megaphone on stage but you suppose that you're probably going to see a musician use that at some point. A man walks on stage dressed in a red coat, black satin trousers and white gloves and says, Ladies and gentlemen, I have the honour to present a session of petomane. The word petomane means someone who can break wind at will, but don't let your nose worry you. My parents ruined themselves scenting my rectum. You sit there and think, what the actual fuck did he just say? Known as a professional flatulist, yes really, Joseph Pujol was known as Le Patomane which translates as fartomaniac, which is not a nickname most would be proud of. When Pujol was a kid, he went swimming in the sea while on holiday with his family. He held his breath and went under the water and had a bit of a shock when a load of water got sucked up his butthole. (laughs) When he made it back to the beach, he was surprised and I can imagine quite concerned to feel the water seeping out of his arse. Being a smart man, he decided that this would become his party trick. During his time serving in the army, he liked to suck water up from a pan into his butt and shoot it out like a 19th century super soaker. 
He concluded that if he could suck water up there, he could suck air in it too. Hang on. Is this like a buckweef? It's a buckweef. If you're an innocent adult human and are wondering what a queef is, I invite you to Google it. That is Q-W-E-E-F. If you're a child, then turn this off immediately. This podcast is not for you. It is marked as explicit. Your parents will tell you off. The fact that he could create and control buckweefs meant that he could basically fart on demand. After he left the army, he opened a bakery, would entertain his customers by pretend farting and saying that he was playing musical instruments behind the counter. I'm not sure if I want to buy bread from a bloke farting up the bakery. Clocking that people absolutely loved his arse. <laughs> in 1887, he debuted at a show in Marseille. And it went so well that it began to form <laughs> perform the Moulin Rouge. <laughs> Pujol named the trumps as they came out, which included a bride on her wedding night, which was a small and delicate fart, a massive one that was a cannon firing, and a 10-second fart that imitated a tailor ripping fabric, a new meaning to letting one rip. He could also make his arse smoke, play tunes and blow out candles a foot away. <laughs> After his fame, he went travelling across the world until the outbreak of World War I, when he retired his butt and opened another bakery. He died in 1945 at the age of 88. <laughs> One of the most iconic horror movie moments of all time is when What's-Her-Face turns her head round in The Exorcist. I've only watched it once and apart from the whole walking down the stairs like a creepy-ass crab, that was one of the worst bits. Humans usually have the ability to rotate their heads around 90 degrees in each direction. Try it now, not if you're driving. But this next guy could turn his head 120 degrees. To make that a bit easier to visualise, he could look directly behind him, so there's no chance of talking about him behind his back. (laughs) He'd be on you like why on rice. Martin Lorello was born in Germany in 1886 and began performing in his 20s. He said that turning his head so far round required three years of practice and he even went as far as to dislocate some of his neck bones to take his talent as far as he could. He was named the Human Owl and you can see videos on YouTube of his performance and watching it did give me a bit of a shiver to say the least. I got a back tattoo a few years ago and I always get annoyed that I can't see it and enjoy it. If I could become the Human Owl I might be able to look at it once in a while. Martin was arrested once for abandoning his wife and kids in 1931. Orcs. And when the police went to find him, he was performing on stage. He apparently gave them a wink with his backward-facing head, which may or may not have amused the officers. I think what I found not surprising, and which is probably quite obvious, is that humans have a tendency to seek out the unusual. We still have variety shows and like to see something that we haven't seen before. But thankfully, we don't have so-called freak shows anymore. What we do have, though, is the internet which gives unusually talented people a chance to reach worldwide audiences, if they're lucky enough to catch their big break going viral. If anyone knows how the podcast can go viral, I'm all is. And that's your lot today, history fans. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Be sure to share with other history nerds if you enjoyed it, and rate and review wherever you listen. Thank you to everyone who has taken the time to do it so far. It's nice to know it's not just my mum listening. I've set up a coffee account and you can find it at ko-fi.com slash across the ages. Each episode takes about 12 hours to create and I do everything myself. So if you enjoy Across the Ages, then feel free to support me by buying me a coffee.
Thank you to the absolute babes that have bought coffees for me so far, and a special thank you to my monthly subscribers. To get in touch, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore across the ages, or you can shout my name really loud. Keep an eye out for the next episode where I'll be delving into another topic, Across the Ages. <laughs>